Welcome to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. Well, certainly one of the most uh, renowned and most loved musical works uh, for all of us is Handel's Messiah. Uh, about four years ago, I persuaded my friend Tom Warburton, who's a retired professor of music at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, to come and explain and play for us portions of the Messiah. We did this during the Christmas season, and we focused on some of the selections uh, in the Messiah that had to do with the uh, prophecy and the birth of Jesus. Now, I've persuaded, after four years, I've persuaded Dr. Warburton to come back and to continue our discussion and our enjoyment and appreciation of the Messiah, but focusing on the uh, portions of the Messiah that have to do with the passion the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And Tom Warburton, uh, you're supposed to be retired, but you're active both as a teacher and as a performer, um, maybe even more than you were when you were on the job, right? <laughs> more or less. More or less. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing this with us. Do you want to just get right into the business at hand and tell us, uh, if you want to, just tell us a little bit more, uh, again, a little bit of the background of Messiah and how it got started and what it what what. what what Handel was trying to accomplish, and what the I caught the guy who who in the opera. What would you call the libretto? The libretto. <laughs> what do uh-huh. you call it? What do you call the words? You have the libretto. Uh-huh. In here, tell us a little bit about it. Well, Messiah was originally intended to be uh, heard, and in fact, for the first time, was heard after Easter in 1742. Uh, to be exact, April 13th of 1742, I looked up on my nice uh, computer perpetual calendar that Easter that year was March 25th, I believe. So uh, after Easter, Messiah was presented in Dublin uh, as a charity event, and it was only later that it was put on in a more public place, and money was raised. And only once during Handel's lifetime was it heard in a sacred space. The, it was met as an entertainment uh, with a sacred subject. And uh, Handel wrote many oratorios uh, that had dramatic qualities to them based on parts of the Bible. But this is one that is more of a meditation on various aspects of the Bible. And you're right. Part two begins with the passion, leads to the resurrection. But then part two continues with the spread of the gospel. And then it closes with several selections based on Psalm 2. And then comes at the end of Act 2 or part 2, the Hallelujah Chorus that is so famous as a closing to this section of Psalm 2. And then part three is largely uh, text from First Corinthians, Paul's letter to the first letter to the Corinthians, on the resurrected life. And what I have brought you is uh, two selections from the end of part two and two selections from part yeah. three. So, is it fair to say that this is a musical history of Christianity, of early Christianity? I mean, uh, I mean, it's a, it's it's a Entertainment, but it's also this is a narrative that explains how a Christian got that where is, he is. That is its line. That is, it is the spread of the word, uh, 
and then a kind of ultimate expression of faith uh, in the hereafter, in the resurrection. What to what do you attribute its early it, its early acceptance, and then its uh, what, is it fair to say overwhelming popularity? Absolutely. As, uh, why? Uh, it's music that is readily accessible. It captures the character of the text in a very cogent way. Uh, the word hallelujah in the hallelujah chorus is sung like we speak it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I think people relate to that in a sort of basic, visceral way. Uh, also, the music is not particularly complex. There are moments of complexity, but basically it's written in a very uh, direct way. You know, we we never hear about the uh, author or the adapter of the words. Uh, we always focus on Handel as yes. the composer of this. And I wonder what, and you're a musician, I wonder what your view about the importance of the words as a component of this work. Well, in this way, it is very much like opera. It is a libretto. Uh, and the sequence of selections uh, in the libretto have to suggest a kind of variety of musical treatments. In the case of the libretto for Messiah, it is all taken from biblical reference. Uh, the Christmas story and the prophecy, and then uh, parts of Paul's letters, Revelation in a couple of places, uh, the narrative of the Passion. So it's not this. The, the person who did this uh, simply took pieces of the Bible, shuffled them in an order which uh, makes even better sense than maybe the uh, biblical line of uh, treatment, and puts it all into the story. Uh, he's not exactly the storyteller. He's the assembler of this. Of the in story. a way, it's like the liturgy, like the uh, readings that we have each Sunday, where various parts of the Bible are brought together because they share common threads or a narrative. Well, I'd better watch out because if we keep talking about these things that interest me, we're not going to hear any of this wonderful music. And you have brought us four selections, uh, and I wonder if you'd introduce the first selection. All right. The one of my purposes here is to show the context of the most famous number, Hallelujah Chorus, in the original. And uh, the Hallelujah Chorus comes at the end of four sections uh, treating Psalm 2. And I'd like to read you the uh, verses from Psalm 2 that Handel sets. Why do the nations so furiously rage together? Why do the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us break their bonds asunder and cast away their yokes from us. He that dwelleth in heaven shall laugh them to scorn. The Lord shall have them in derision. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And it's that last verse, thou shalt break them. I want you to hear first, because it's one of the less familiar ones, but it captures the vigorous 
almost angry aspect of breaking down uh, the corruptness in the world. And it is a tenor solo, and since it is conceived for the higher tenor voice, the male voice, it has a kind of dynamic, defiant quality to it. Well, Tom Warburton, let's listen to this selection. Now shall break them. Tom Warburton is sharing with us uh, portions of the Messiah, uh, and we're focusing on the events of the Easter season. This, though, is an, was an Old Testament uh, yes. selection from Psalms. And it, uh, Tom Warburton, maybe we'll take a break, and you can ex- then explain to us how this selection leads to the Hallelujah Chorus, and you'll play that for us then. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Tom Warburton is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin, retired University of North Carolina professor on the music faculty. Uh, Tom Thomas Warburton has uh, joined us to continue our discussion, which we began four years ago, about the wonderful um, well, uh, how we're getting to the Hallelujah Chorus, um, Handel's wonderful creation. And Tom, uh, we heard a selection based on Psalms. Uh, uh, thou shalt break them, and how does that lead to the? To well, the that's that's the curious thing. We always hear Hallelujah chorus, apart from the rest of Messiah, and to have it come after this very defiant selection from Psalms, says to me that Hallelujah chorus, which is about a king that shall reign forever and ever, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, why does that follow? Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. And I think maybe it's an expression of the fact that the worldly life is full of grief and destruction and death. And we're going to break up this old order. That's what Psalms is saying. And the Hallelujah Chorus celebrates the breaking the, the destruction of the old order and the hope for something new to come. Uh, and and I don't think we always hear Hallelujah Chorus in that context. Also, Hallelujah Chorus is not the last thing. It is not the most brilliant 
piece in uh, Handel's Messiah, but it is certainly one of them. Uh, it is one. So of, you're going to later on. You're going to share with us something even more brilliant. Well, uh, at the very, we're not yeah, going to do yeah. the final chorus, but it is from Revelation, as is the uh, word, as are the words from Hallelujah chorus. But it is the hope for something better in eternity. Why then is the Hallelujah chorus? Uh, so renowned, and is this the point where the king stood up? That everybody the tradition stands? is that when it was performed in London, several years after it was written, that the king did stand during the Hallelujah Chorus. And for many years, whenever Hallelujah Chorus has been performed, people stand. Wow. Well, let's. Uh, anything that you should say in introduction before you share well with us? listen to the way the words king of kings and lord of lords is repeated getting higher and higher in pitch therefore more brilliant more celebratory
Tom Warburton is sharing with us portions of the Messiah, and you certainly recognize that part, the Hallelujah Chorus. I'd forgotten until we heard it again, Tom, how it stirs you. And what's the secret, from a musician standpoint, what's the secret of this song? Oh, well, partially simple repetition. You hear hallelujah over and over. Uh, you hear the words king of kings, lord of lords, over and over. It's in a brilliant key. It is the first of three times in the uh, oratorio where Handel uses trumpets, a major symbol and sound in the book of Revelation. But the thing that I think is part of the key here is are the words sung very quietly, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of Christ. That's the tr transition that occurs largely in the book of Revelation. Well, we talked uh, before we heard this about the king standing up, and of course that's a great, Im you know, great popular image and um, I, the king probably never did anything really out of or without plotting it and thinking yeah. about it why do you think I mean, well what, what I are would the stories what are the stories I, that it's that yeah. simple but the thing I have thought is when did he decide to stand he wouldn't have known to stand at the very beginning of it because he hadn't heard it yet so something within the Chorus made him stand, and I've wondered if he didn't relate to the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords, especially where the sopranos are getting higher and higher. It just lifted him up. Wow. Uh, we're visiting with uh, Professor Thomas Warburton about Handel's Messiah. Uh, Dr. Warburton and I will be right back after this short break. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. Uh, a retired music professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and our neighbor here in Chapel Hill, Thomas Warburton, uh, has agreed to come back and give us. Uh, Tom, is it fair to say this is our section, our second lesson on the Messiah? Yes. We did this uh, several years ago, focusing on the Christmas season. Uh, this time, we're focusing on the the events of the Easter season and afterwards. And we just heard a magnificent version of the Hallelujah chorus, and what. I mean, it's almost like uh, this is where we ought. This is the this is where we ought to stop. Why don't we stop here? Well, that's a very good question because it is not the end. Uh, we the third part, which comes immediately after this, is taken. The words are taken largely from the Anglican service for the burial of the dead, which are is full of hope. The, the, every text in part three of Messiah is full of hope. It begins with a portion of Job, I know that my Redeemer liveth, then several sections of First Corinthians, and then it closes with a second chorus from Revelation, and uh, there we have it brought to the complete and final uh, fulfillment. Now, you're not going to share with us, I know that my Redeemer liveth, although that's another popular Very segment. Why, you, why do you skip that? Is that because you think we already know that one? And you no, it's it too long. Too long. All right. Then we're after uh, those who are familiar with this piece. After I know that my Redeemer liveth, where do we go? Well, uh, almost immediately after that aria comes a short chorus and probably one of the most 
cogent and certainly simplest choruses of the whole oratorio, Since by Man Came Death. And it is in this chorus that I feel we understand why Messiah is so popular. Because in this chorus you have Since by Man Came Death, very quiet, very dark, uh, almost foreboding. But then immediately, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Very brilliant. Major key. Then it reflects back to the beginning. For as in Adam all die. And then, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we, in this course, pit the death and resurrection against each other twice. And and one of the things you mentioned before you explained this is, and and how this fits, is that these elements come from a funeral service in in, in the Anglican tradition, and it would be something that would be, uh, that anybody in a mainline Christian church would recognize as a part of an orderly funeral service, that there is this mixture, this blend of loss, and hopefulness Correct. that uh, come from both death and the prospect of, of uh, life after death. So, I mean, that uh, already, I mean, well, you're teaching me every minute. But uh, introduce the selection. And, well, and, you will hear a short chorus. It's about three minutes long. You'll hear four sections. One and three, very dark. Death, two and four, much more brilliant, faster. There's the contrast of slow and fast, the resurrection.
like that recording because the slow dark is very, very slow. And the more brilliant resurrection is, on the other hand, much faster than you usually hear it. So the opposition, uh, dark, light, slow, fast, is set in stark relief. Uh, We just listened to a selection from Handel's Messiah since by man came death. And Tom, you explained to us before we got started that there were two two themes uh, one and three dark the despair about death two and four more joyful about the prospects uh, of uh, life after death uh, brought about uh, by the events of the Easter season uh, Tom Warburton has uh, come back to teach us more about the Messiah and enhance our enjoyment of it. By the way, if you um, – I've mentioned earlier that this is was inspired by his program several years ago on the Messiah that focused on the Christmas season. And you can listen to that uh, by going to the website for WCHL and this program. And all you got to do is type in either Tom Warburton's name or Messiah or Handel, and you'll get – You'll get a link back to that program, and you can listen to it on your computer, and you'll be able to listen to this program again, as I will, Tom, because it's wonderful. Now, um, where, where are we now in the uh, – having heard this selection, where are we in the story that, and, and Handel's Messiah, and what are we going to get uh, later on? Well, uh, immediately after this course comes probably the second most popular Peace in Messiah, the uh, aria by bass, the trumpet shall sound, introduced by a short recitative. Let me me just say this. Well, why don't we take a break, and we'll come back and listen to that. uh, Let you explain that, introduce that selection, and then we'll listen to it. Again, we're visiting with uh, Professor Tom Warburton, and he and I will be right back. Welcome back to Who's Talking. This is D.G. Martin. Uh, Tom Warburton is my guest. And, Tom, we're talking again about the Messiah. Uh, you've got a longer selection to play for us, and we're both a little bit uncomfortable about having that link, lengthy section. But it's, it's got it's, – surely it's got trumpet music. Where are we, and what is this going to do? Well, this is leading up now to the finale, which uh, includes the two other selections in Messiah that have trumpet. And trumpet is a an image throughout the Bible of power, but especially so in Revelation. And so we sing about the last day when the trumpet shall sound. And Handel chose a bass voice. He chose a brilliant trumpeter. And, and we have the celebration of this new power. Let's listen to it. Thank you. 
Tom Warburton, uh, we've not got much time, but we have got uh, a powerful trumpet symbol and the hopefulness from taken from Corinthians of um, a hope that the way we looked at things as mortal men and women is going to be different because we're going to be changed. There's a hope for resurrection and an immortality that is uh, a key to, I guess, the whole piece. Yes. Um, now, are we at the end at last, or is there more? There's more in the composition that Handel wrote, but I don't think we have time to hear more. Uh, but this is certainly one of the most powerful moments in Messiah, and it, it goes a little further than that in the very elaborate chorus that ends Messiah, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, with a very long Amen chorus. Well, um, I, I, I guess there are two questions that pop into my mind. What is the secret of the power of this piece? And is it still as a power is it still as powerful in our culture today as it was 25, 30, 40 years ago? And if not, why not? I doubt that there is any place of any reasonable size in our country that doesn't hear Messiah at least once and probably more than once in a 12-month period, mostly at Christmas. And why Christmas when what you've explained to us is that the real point and finale, the final points and the, um, is, is really with respect to resurrection, hope, transformation and um, the messages of the Easter season? Well, I think we tend to look at Christmas as being fulfilled 
at Easter. So we can view the whole thing uh, at Christmas time. And indeed, about a third of Messiah is centered around Christmas. But it is fulfilled later. Uh, you pointed out to us that the words of the um, Messiah come almost strictly from the Bible. Uh, and, and I've teased you about uh, the power of the person who assembled these, somebody we never heard of before. But I want to go back to the music a little bit. We've talked about the, um, in modern times, we talk more and more about the what the scriptures are and to what extent they're original and have been changed or uh, adjusted, uh, why they were written, who added on at what point in time. And so uh, the question I've got for you goes back to the music of the Messiah. And is this totally handles creation, or have people monkeyed with it along the way? Uh, They have monkeyed with it. Uh, Mozart added some orchestral parts. Uh, Thomas Beecham did a very famous recording. Uh, I don't remember, I think maybe in the 40s, where he added instruments, made it more elaborate. Uh, What has happened, though, since the middle of the 20th century is to go back and recreate it as it was heard in Handel's day. So those of us who live in modern times are uh, more familiar with the original Handel creation than maybe uh, our grandparents, great-grandparents would have been in earlier times when the influence of other. We've restored it. In a, we have restored it. Now, what, what, were the, what were the strong points of the modifications, and then what are the strong points of the original that have made us come back to it? Or do we just say we want the original? We don't care uh, whether it was better when Mozart messed with it. No, I think there was we're a much more eclectic society now and so there's room for hearing things as they originally were even though they are not quote modern unquote. Uh, So there's an air of authenticity which has been very prevalent in the last maybe one third century. Uh, But uh, you could hear the more modern versions, and sometimes they are done as well. Uh, that, there, that there are current modifications, that some people who put it on uh, make changes to make it in, in con- real contemporary time. And after all, this is performed music, so every conductor is going to bring his or her special interpretation to it. What is the, uh, what are the, uh, you've, you've heard it Lots of times, both recording and you've heard it live performances. What are some of the memories that you have of the more powerful? Uh, well, it is the quality of the soloists. They they are paramount in the success and effectiveness of a work such as this. And I've heard it once live, uh, and the soloists were excellent. I know that Handel was especially concerned that he have good soloists. Uh, it's it's hearing the panorama from beginning to end that is the message of the work. It's like any other more dramatic work. That is, you come out at the end at a sense of having arrived. Wow. Well, Tom Orwarton, thank you very much for sharing your insights into Handel's Messiah. As I mentioned earlier, Tom Orwarton uh, joined us uh, several years ago during the Christmas season to talk about Handel's Messiah, and we focused on the aspects of the Messiah that related to the uh, uh, prophecy and birth of 
uh, of Jesus Christ. This time we focused on the uh, Easter and uh, post-Easter events. And uh, you'll be able to hear either of these programs by, uh, by coming to the WCHL website, uh, coming to the program on Who's Talking, and in essence uh, searching for a program on Handle Messiah or typing in the word war button, and you'll, you'll uh, find these two programs. Tom, thanks so much for this wonderful, wonderful program. You're welcome. And thank